Yes, it's me, Mark Stone, and this is the Backseat Driver Podcast. I'm sat in the National Centre for Motorsport Engineering at Bolton University with the director, Mark Bushfield. It's safe to say somebody who should probably have been working in the world of agriculture has had one of the most spectacular careers in motorsport on of a lot of people. It's quite fascinating, is Mark's story. Mark, welcome to the Backseat Drive radio show. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Now, from making somebody a cup of tea one afternoon, how did you go from agriculture to the, at times, the absolute pinnacle of motorsport? Okay, so it's a long story. So let's start the beginning. <laughs> I was, when I was back at school, I was doing sixth form. And the idea was my career path was to take me to agricultural college. And I'd applied to go to Ask and Bride. I was tinkering in the garage one afternoon. And a friend of my father's came around, a guy called Tony Fall, who was a works rally driver. And at that time was head of the Opel Motorsport Department in Germany. So my father was out. So I made him a cup of tea and he watched me faff around in the garage for a good hour. And I was fixing the lawnmower bike, whatever it was. <laughs> Can't remember. But anyhow... He went in when my father arrived and explained to dad that they were looking for an apprentice for the rally team in Germany and would Mark consider potentially moving to Germany. So the subject was born at dinner that night that Tony was looking for an apprentice and would I consider, which would mean leaving school early. So the answer was, of course, absolutely. So the only prerequisite that was needed was a driving license. So this was in December. My birthday wasn't until April. So six days after my birthday, I took my test and left to Germany a day after that. And, uh, and the rest is history. So I never ever looked back really. I mean, it was the, the best opportunity. Very fortunate. I was given the chance to be an apprentice for a world team. At that time, the, the world running championship was very much televised. It was very much in the limelight. It was the highlight of the start of group B. So we were working on the Manta, but the Quattro came along, then the Turbo, then the Peugeot, then the Lancia. So yeah, very, very, very interesting times. And it really, at that time, starting as an apprentice, I made a lot of tea. So I was obviously proved I was good at that, but progressed as we moved back to the UK with what was GM dealer sport, doing British championship and some European and world events with Jimmy McRae, Russell Brooks, and then doing into the world championship later with the Astra with Malcolm Wilson, Louise Aitken Walker and, and such like. So yeah, fantastic times, really, really enjoyable. Now, the interesting thing was you mentioned Jimmy McRae there also. Harry the Man Vatanan, the late great Henry Toivonen. Yeah. So you could appreciate what the drivers required from their cars. They strapped you in the co-driver's seat with all three to make sure you knew what was required. I mean, what was it like riding with these guys? Mental. So, okay. so if I go back to, I, I joined the team. We'd spent two or three weeks in Germany preparing the cars. And the first event for me was the Acropolis in 83, which was the first ever event for the Manta 400 which back then was sponsored by Rothmans, so it was the Rothmans livery cars. Prior to any World Rally, there was like a precursory test venue, so we would go to a private shakedown, for want of a better word, and we would put all the parts that we knew were going to change during the event into a car, do a few kilometres, then change the wheels, so gearboxes and axles. Back then, they were using rally cars for recce cars, so the Manta was the rally car for the event, but we got a load of Ascona 400s as well, so there was probably seven or eight rally cars at this venue. We were changing components and just running them in. So we'd done that for pretty much all the day. It was getting towards the end of the day. And a couple of the guys said it would be a good idea to put Mark in with Jimmy, just so he knows to make sure the wheel nuts need to be tight. <laughs> so we, 
jumped in the car and, and I think there was obviously a bit of a note to Jimmy try and make Mark sick. We want to see what we had for dinner again. <laughs> so we were driving around what was an old quarry with a, a narrow road around it. And Jim drove a right-hand drive car. So I was sat on the passenger side and he was going clockwise around the quarry. So it wasn't so bad. He got the drop on his side. So off we set and go around and I was quite impressed. I thought, yep, I was going to be a rally driver one day. Then realized immediately I was never going to be a rally driver. Because as good as I thought I was, I could see I was definitely, definitely a long way from the mark. So we got back and I'd sort of held my dinner in. I was quite pleased with myself and then hung around and hung around. And then there was a couple more runs. And, and then the German mechanics were looking after both Harry and Henry came back over and they could see I was a bit squeamish with Jim. Said, do we want to put Mark in with Harry? Of course, don't you trust me twice. Like Harry Vatnam was my childhood hero. So yeah, of course I'll have some of that. So you jump into the passenger seat. He was uh, left-hand drive. So I'm now hanging over the edge and he sets off in a much more flamboyant style than, than Jim. And I still couldn't believe at the time, just how quick the cars were going compared to the fact we're about to do the Acropolis, which was a car killer of an event. So it was to me, we're wearing the cars out before the start, but that was my naivety of the time. So anyway, he does his run, which certainly the bits that Jim slowed down for, Ari took a lot quicker. And there was a little bit at the bottom. We went through a ravine that Jim slowed right down for. Ari went through in sort of third gear. And we got a little bit airborne. So I got back. It was quick more. It was a lot different driving style, but it was nonetheless quite an experience. Got back, managed to keep my dinner in. So I was really quite pleased. The other mechanics had obviously desperately wanted to see my dinner again. <laughs> So we'd left it to the last, last run of the day and I was packing up everything away and it was like, oh, there's one more run to do, jump in with Henry. So, and Henry had obviously, I think been brief, we need to see Mark's dinner. <laughs> and all I'm doing is wear a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and all I've got is an intercom on, nothing else, no helmet, no protection. Well, we're going from the outside of these guys yeah, used to do no, these exactly rallies. Right, <laughs> the driver was wearing a pair of plimsolls and a pair of shorts on a t-shirt as well. There was no one wearing overalls. So off we set. Like from a standing start, it was like a special stage. And we got to the bit at the end, which Jimmy had slowed down for. Ari had gone through in third year. Henry took it sort of from, I remember it, as fast as he could. <laughs> we seemed to be flying for quite a long time before we landed. He did a handbrake turn and then came back the other way. And as we arrived back into the paddock, I had to rush behind the crowd. <laughs> and I saw my dinner again, but I kept it from the rest of the team. Now, from Opal, you've progressed through. You've progressed through a lot of teams as work has taken you through the sport, because besides two, besides rallies, you've done touring cars, you've done world touring cars, you've done GT racing. Yeah. Just, just talk us from bouncing through a quarry. Yeah, with the late great Henry Diven. Yeah, where did it all? Where did it all go right? Okay, so it depends what you call right and wrong. So I um, moved back to the UK from Germany when the, the Rothmans contract was lost, and we'd set up as dealer sport. So. I continued to develop as an apprentice and eventually became like a lead mechanic for the team on the Astra project. By that time, it was initially with David Metcalf and then laterally with Malcolm Wilson. And Eurosport, which is what we were then called, was doing a series of European and world rally rounds as well as the British Championship. So we did that until 1990. And, and at the end of 1990, the Astra had kind of fulfilled its platform and everybody was going to the Group A route yeah. with world rally championship and you needed a four-wheel drive car so opal had tried to develop alternative four-wheel drive and they'd played with the cavalier and then with the calibra as that came on but i'd realized that opportunities lied elsewhere so i actually left the team in 1990 and went to work for the local audi franchise in harrogate yeah. to me as assistant service and we're a volkswagen and audi dealer it seemed quite quite well that wasn't it working for a dealership. Yeah, it was interesting. So well, what that did, it was it was one of those experiences I'm so glad I did because it was a life changing moment. Mm. 
So that was the point where you no longer were a mechanic and you became a manager and they were very good. They'd supported you with a load of dealer courses and such like, which gave you the management styles and the interaction you needed with customers and such like. And I did that for Not about... like talking to a driver. No, <laughs> no, 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 exactly. <laughs> but, but the interesting was because obviously you understood the fundamentals of the car. You were looking yeah. after a workshop. You knew what was going on with everything. And as I say, I did that for a year. And then the opportunity came up. MSD had formed from what was the GM team. Yeah. And uh, David Whitehead, who was the owner of the team, had asked me if I'd go down and, and act as, in essence, workshop foreman. So it was an opportunity not to be. And, and as I say, they were at that time looking at the Cavalier 4x4, Calibra 4x4. We then involved in doing an F2 Astra rally car and other various projects. So there were lots going on. And I went back there as workshop foreman and then progressed to operations manager, workshop manager, and such like. And I continued to do that for a number of years. And we really grew the business as a manufacturing operation. So from being a very small team that was using external suppliers, we set up our own machine shop, our own fabrication department. We then started to do composites and it grew and grew and grew. And we then started to get involved with the projects. We got the Honda for British Touring Car Championship. Yeah. We then did the Vectra Challenge and, you know, we went from a group of four or five people to 40 or 50 people very quickly. I say very quickly, over a few years. So I was responsible for all of that and it was a completely different skill set. And at that point, I realized I need to give myself some more training. It, I got to the point where, you know, this was beyond a college or anything else. So I then started to go to night school to learn about management technique, you know, just in time management systems. Just put in there, I mean, running a rally team and running a, a touring car team, there will be similarities, but there will also be differences yeah, because of, want a better term, the discipline you've yeah. gone from a stage, yeah. a stage car, something that yeah. multi-surface to something that runs on a circuit. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I, I think in essence, what happens when you're running a team, it really doesn't matter what the discipline is. You just have the engineers that are capable of doing that. You're responsible for the budget, for employing, you've got the right staff and personnel, making sure everybody's got a brief and a plan on working to it. And then the discipline of what happens in the field or on, on the race day or the rally day, it is, becomes a different set of circumstances. Because you'll go from, shall we say, a headquarters, yeah. you're into a pit lane now. Yeah. Yeah. Everything has to go or there'll be a list of what has to go from the headquarters yep. to the pit lane yep. because no. you've still got to be able to do the exact same job in a pit lane that you could do in the headquarters. Yeah, no, I think, and I think the interesting thing, which I, I personally find, having done all my background work in the World Rally Championship, and, and, and in essence, you are two men in a van on a hillside with a driver and a co-driver, and whatever bits you've got and in the van. And a ground sheet, if yeah. you're lucky. Well, we didn't have a ground sheet. You got very dusty. So you, you, you had to make do with what you've got. And, you know, there's many a time where we've, you know, resourced, you know, cut down a bit of fence post or an old bit of gate and welded it into the car. Because you had to do. Yeah. Otherwise, you, you know, this was before Super Rally. You, you've retired. You were going home. And they just believe there's the stories of people borrowing axles off. Yeah. Members of the public's car to yeah, stick no, on the rally car. Exactly. To get the the famous in. video from the Scottish back with Barry Hinchcliffe. Yes, yeah. Yeah, when they borrow a guy's capri axle to put yeah. underneath that. Yeah, I mean, those I've, I've experienced, go back to the World Rally Championship when we were running over the Hyundai team with the Accent. We were doing an event, and it was very wet. It was Portugal, and we had the wiper motor was mounted to the floor of the Accent on a bracket, and it was pouring with rain. It was like torrential. Anyway, the bracket failed, mm. so the wiper motor was free to roam. <laughs> so <laughs> Kenneth, in his innovative way, decided he was going to make a while he was waiting for the stage control, whittled down some sticks and some tie-ups with the kit he had in the car and made this super, like, super Laguerre yeah. supporting bracket to hold the wiper motor. <laughs> he came into service and the one job was, look at the wiper motor, I think we need to make a new bracket for it. The engineer of the time looked in, he said, 
we couldn't do anything better than that. <laughs> so we left him with a wooden hypermotor bracket for the rest of the event and it never failed. It was yeah. absolutely perfect. So, but it is that, that, that sort of innovative way of just doing what you can do with what you've got. And yeah. I think the good thing was from the rallying perspective, where you had everything you needed, when you take that ethos then to circuit racing, which was then not as professional as it is now, whereby, you know, you would have had all your parts pre-run and everything else. Taking that to circuit racing then raised the level of circuit racing as well. And certainly when I was doing British touring cars in the 1990s, and there was so much money being spent, you know, there was eight manufacturers doing the championship and they were all out to get the fastest time. You wanted to be the quickest at the end of the test date on CFAX. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you were all throwing tires to get purple sector to be on CFAX at the end of the day because yeah. that was selling cars. But that, that sort of rallying background really did stand you in good stead. Yeah. And I think it was no, there was no detriment to that. And, you know, it really did raise the professionalism. Unfortunately, all it does then, the more money you can spend, if there's an, an undefined amount of money, you spend more money. Yeah. And it just raises budgets up, which then unfortunately forces manufacturers to go elsewhere because it's too expensive for them. Yeah. Because there's some, ultimately, there's somebody sat there, a, a bean counter, shall we say, look, I said, somebody said, here, hang on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we, we've had a situation. Obviously our budget, when I was looking after touring cars for RML. So that was RML design and built the car in conjunction with NME who were based at Didcot and they were ever seen by Alec Poole. And we had our budget to work to. I was responsible for that budget and we knew what we had and tires was an aside from that, that Didcot picked up that bill. And if it wasn't a test session and it needed another two sets of Michelin tires, Alec Poole would just say, let's go purple sector. We yeah. ju just go chasing for it and we just keep throwing tires at the car. But so is everybody else. Yeah. And, you know, back then you've got eight manufacturers, all with two cars. That's 16 cars just eating tires quite quickly. Yeah. I mean, it does make you realize why limits have been put on things. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, it has to do because as, as I've seen, my, my cyclic time around motorsport has been following where there's been manufacturer programs and manufacturer programs are based on what's in vogue at the time. So I started in the World Rally Championship because World Rally Championship got the TV coverage that you're looking for. And many manufacturers are doing that. Unfortunately, after Henry Teuvenen's death was mm. kind of the icing on the cake where everybody realized Group B was out of control. So, I mean, the, the, the Group B cars were staggeringly spectacular. They were. I mean, they were actually faster than Formula One cars. Yeah, no, well, allegedly, and I don't know how true it is. They say that Lancia did a test at Estoril with Henry driving the car on, on slick tires and purportedly that if, if his time around the track was to be correct, it would have put him on fourth place on the grid for the Grand Prix that year, yeah. which is mindless. I mean, if that is true, and there's no reason to not believe it because of what you know from what the cars had and the performance that they were running on that car, it is quite likely. And there's a story about Michel Moutiner at Sport Quattro being asked to slow down for, uh, they were filming it and the, the two, what were regarded as two of the world's fastest helicopters couldn't keep up with it okay. down a forest stage. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, well, I can believe it. Yeah, I can believe it. And though the cars were ludicrous <laughs> quick. And the problem was, it wasn't the problem with the cars, it was the problem with the spectator control. So it, you well, it, it, it was, I think it's it, it was Italy where it was a sight, it was a mark of bravado if you could touch yeah, one. No, I know. It was crazy. It was, I mean, I remember servicing on these events and you physically couldn't get from one stage to the other because the cars were parked so poorly everywhere. Yeah. You know, we've had a situation where we've had to drive through. We had a, a quite a large van and some of the police have actually asked us to push our way through and you've pushed through cars, actually pushing them out of the way with your yeah. van. But the police are actually waving you through because <laughs> they're, they're trying to clear the road. <laughs> so you get there and try and tell your team manager, I'm very sorry about the damage to my bumpers, but I've got here. Yeah. And, and you know, you'd have to have another story about it, but yeah, madness. Absolutely. But yeah, the, the, the car performance was getting so quick and inevitably, as was the case that's happened in Portugal, 
there'll be contact with the car and spectators and there'll be yeah. fatalities and, and it, you know, fatalities for spectators and then fatalities for drivers, something had to be done, but there was a knee jerk reaction and group B was killed overnight. The um, one thing I would say though, I know the spectators are out of control. It showed that era's passion for oh, the sport. Yeah, no, absolutely. It was, abs I think probably F1 was struggling to come anywhere near that level of popularity. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was. And again, it was down to the television, the media. It was a massive... And the drivers were stories, weren't they? They were proper, yeah. they were proper yeah. people. Yeah, yeah. And there was there was a link to a certain degree from the cars to what you can buy in the showroom. Yeah. The manufacturers behind it. You know, there was a genuine belief that you were buying a product that had been proven in the World Rally Championship. Yeah. So it, it, it worked for everybody. Nowadays, I mean, Group B cars started to look very dissimilar from the road car. Mm. And nowadays, you know, a WRC car looks absolutely nothing like well, a road car. Well, it actually looks like something off a computer game. Yeah. It, there yeah. is no, apart from a, yeah. a vague passing hint in a bad light, if you squint, it looks like the thing in the showroom. There's yeah. no relationship whatsoever. No, I mean, you look at it as an engineering exercise. The cars are absolutely wonderful, but they are completely different to the road yeah. car. There's no actual record. Whereas a touring car does at least look like What's the road car yeah. with a wing <laughs> on the back. <laughs> so there is a similarity. There is a similarity. So where did it all progress from there? Because, I mean, you've moved on. You've never really left motorsport. I know you've said you've, you've tried to leave motorsport, but motorsport won't let you leave. Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting. So having done World Rally and then British Touring Cars, so in 1990, I'd left MSD as operations manager and gone to RML. And the only reason was I'd wanted to be a team manager. I really wanted to do that one thing. That was my aim in life. You'd have aimed to wear a white shirt and have a clipboard, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. yeah. And a set of headphones. It was, a set of headphones. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it was kind of like my, my making. So it was one thing you wanted to do. And unfortunately, the opportunity never came with MSD. David was reluctant to let me go. He wanted me to stay as operations manager. We had a team manager at the time. So I, I went to RML and joined the Nissan team, which was a really, really wonderful time. I mean, it, it's one of the best times of my life. So you join a team that proved the year before the car was competitive. They had some reliability issues. They got a very good driver lineup. And at that time, touring cars was very much under the spotlight. So we, we started with what was proved to be quite a quick car. And we actually won the team's manufacturer's title, but we were eluded the driver's championship. Ricard won that with the Volvo. Yeah. So 99, we came back. We really had all guns blazing. We had a driver change. So we, we changed Anthony to Laurent, who joined the British Touring Car Championship for the first time. He joined us from Peugeot, but came with good provenance and was a very, very quick driver. And he really made David dig deep as well. And the two kind of like bounced off each other, but didn't, there was quite a bit of conflict, but it was an interesting time as mm. somebody trying to hold all that together and, and, and get the car to perform on track. Because what you've not got to do is tell you where two drivers do not, and it happens all the time, do not eliminate one another. No, I know. Yeah, <laughs> the team orders, not team orders scenarios is always the worst thing, particularly when you've got two drivers that want to be at the front. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to make sure that both drivers are sharing data and we're learning from each other. And you are making sure you are staying ahead of everybody else and not fighting against each other, which is sometimes also very difficult. But so, yeah, we, we finished the championship in 99 and had won everything, including the driver's championship. And then what happened is that cyclic collapse of a championship. Nissan was spending a lot of money. Peugeot had already struggled and they said they were going to pull out. Audi had already left. Um, so all of a sudden you've got this eight manufacturers became three yeah, and, and the championship just fell apart purely on the basis of the fact it was so expensive and Nissan had really would have only continued if everybody else had like we've won everything we can, all we can do is get worse. Yeah. So they, they, they pulled. And I think the thing is then when you start to try and pull privateers in, the privateers suddenly realize why the works teams have dropped out because yeah. Well, I mean, if a works team can't afford it, a privateer team probably definitely can't no, afford it. Well, interestingly, I, I know. 
John Cleland, he, he obviously bought his old touring car and obviously tried to race it in historics, but, you know, just finding the parts, yeah. I've got a good friend of mine, Dan Wheeler, he bought an old Nissan that was from 97, an old Reed car. And he tried to, he's been running that in historics again, yeah. finding the parts, finding the hardware, they, they need constant care and attention mm. and they are very expensive things to run. Yeah. It's not the something you can just fire up once a year and take out for a spin because <laughs> the resonance and everything else, you know, things just shake themselves apart, yeah. you know, and, we, and it is the way it is. And all we did back then was you just keep fitting new parts to the car, yeah. which, you know, on all those new parts, if you've got new parts are still now 21 years old. Yeah. Um, the, I think the thing with racing cars, lots of racing cars is the, the components have it's a bit like helicopters. They have, shall we say, there's a lifespan on them. Yep. And they have to be replaced because if you go beyond what you anticipate for it, yep. it might be working when the guy rolls out the pit lane. Yeah. It might not be working anymore by the time it gets uh, to the first corner. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if we, if we ever developed a new part, and this is rallying or racing, we would normally want to see a thousand kilometers mm. on that part to prove it's, and, and you could do as much FEA on it as you wanted to make sure it was okay. We'd actually do dynamically a thousand Ks. And once and it's done a thousand Ks of like what you would call race or rally speed. Yeah, no, absolutely. Don't just, so drive, so, don't, don't, just yeah. drive it around for a thousand Ks. Yeah, no, exactly. And then likewise, it's safe. It was rallying. You do a thousand Ks on an Acropolis stage, yeah. but not on a San Remo gravel stage, <laughs> on a tarmac stage rather. So you'd make sure the car was put through its paces. And what would do once you'd actually done that, you then obviously sign that off and do it. Mm -hmm. If we ever had a new part that you knew was performance related, whereby you really could make a significant difference, you'd have to get theoretically, you know, board level decision, are we going to run this part on the car because it may fail? Yeah. And what you would probably opt to do as it has in the case, certainly in rallying, you'd put it on one car only. Yeah. So the benefit to the driver, if this works, you're going to get performance advantage, Yeah. but don't come crying to us when if your car's parked to the side, it's going to be broken <laughs> suspension, which could happen. Yeah. So I yeah. mean, it'll be funny. You do hear this, especially you see yourself in formula one. Driver B's car has this new part fitted to yeah. it. Yeah. Driver A's doesn't yeah and that is the reason yeah no, absolutely well and, and likewise you also have the scenario whereby saying grand prix or, or rally one car falls by the wayside because that's had a, a terminal problem and the chances are the second car could have exactly the same problem because it's done exactly the same duty cycle and yeah and it has happened where two cars have parked up on the track or on a special stage both with the same failure because yeah. a component has just not been you know subject to that demands it's been put through and it yeah. fails it fails. Well, it's not funny it's a bit like the late great Colin Chapman he used to if a race was 70 laps long don't build a car that will do 71 because yeah. you've over engineered one bit of it yeah no no exactly no the, and the, the, that certainly in the, in the high heydays of touring cars was the case you know we would change hard from a life in perspective you know we'd be limited to we would say it has to do a thousand kilometers but perhaps we'll change it every two thousand mm. so as the season goes on the car hands down yeah. is, is hardware and we circulate it so many times it's someone's job to log every lap that every part on that car's done so you know that if you take a wishbone that that's actually done three races and yeah. its total distance is i don't know 400 kilometers mm. and that has a tag to it mm. so that you because the last thing you want to do is fit a part that's already done six races or if there's a question mark so if there's been contact on the track just as a precaution even if it looks okay you change the hardware yeah. just so as not to have any problems the only benefit now is you can sell all these bits you take off as souvenirs and make a profit. <laughs> yeah, if only I still had them. Consider the amount of parts that we have disposed over the years. And you can see now some of the, I mean, even just for modern sculptures. One year we were, when I was back at MSD, we had Tim Harvey driving for us and he was very good at damaging dog rings in the yeah. gearbox. 
So we had this box, a bucket of damaged gears. And one of the mechanics thought it'd be an excellent idea, a young guy called Steve. So he welded them all up as a sculpture and made like a, a gear man. Yeah. And we presented it to <laughs> Tim at the end of the season party. He's going, here's your gears back. <laughs> now, after all that, you're now director at the National Centre for Motorsport Engineering here at Bolton University. How did you end up here? And it will seem quite a quiet life in its own way now, won't it? I guess no. It's interesting. So having looked after these teams for a number of years, and I've obviously been very involved in the recruitment process, and that's recruitment for all team members, including engineering staff. And I've always really struggled to find good engineers, mm. young junior engineers. And, and it's always nice to have a good case where you've got a good junior engineer who's joined you and progressed with you. And then you've seen them grow and flourish. And I work with many engineers that have gone on to good, you know, done really good things. So it's from that experience of struggling to understand what students had and needed, the opportunity when offered to come and work at a university and, and grow the graduates who are going to be the engineers of tomorrow with the industry backing, thinking from the employability perspective and what weaknesses I'd seen from the ones that I'd had, it, it brings a whole different ethos. So yeah, I mean, we're here now, this is the fourth year I've been here, brand new purpose-built facility. And we have a USP, which is on top of all the theory, we let the students actually get involved practically and we give them internships within industry. Because the one interesting thing is when you walk into the foyer of this building, you're under no doubt what it's here to do. We've yeah. got, it's full of racing cars, proper racing cars. Yeah, no, we, so we're fortunate in a way. So we have many collaborators and people who support us by learning us their hardware. So we're very fortunate in a way that we have this opportunity for a diverse range of cars. So we've got loads of things down there, none of which we own, all on loan. Do you get to race them? Yeah, we do. So the Ensign project. So we've got Formula One Ensign down there from 1981, which actually won the British Formula One Championship with Jim Crawford, who was a Boltonian. So there's a Bolton link there. Um, we ran that last year in the Masters race at Brands Hatch with Johnny Herbert, and the plan is to race it again this year at Silverstone. So there's a load of students down there at the moment putting that car together. We've had to do a full winter rebuild. So that means taking everything back. All the parts need to be blasted, crack tested, any repairs. So all the, the students here realise what a rebuild on an F1 oh, car is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, no. So, I mean, and it's important that we get the students involved because the one qualm I had over the employability perspective of graduates, they were coming out with a load of theory and they're very good with a laptop, but they weren't, that pra <laughs> they weren't that practical. Sometimes their designs, if they were a design engineer, you know, we once had a, a, an engineer who designed, we gave them a part which came with a bracket, and then they made a bracket to suit the bracket. Yeah. Why do you just design the one bracket and throw the other bracket? <laughs> I, was like, oh, I didn't know I could do that. So it, it's, it's that thinking outside the box, but also becoming involved, having a team and in certainly a modern day involvement, all teams are small. So even as team, you know, I'm quite happy to arrive at the track, help wash the truck, set up the garage, put the board in the flooring down, all that stuff that nobody ever sees, but that day of setup. And Plus that all important thing, the kettle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, the first thing was always get the urn on. So get the urn. <laughs> make sure you got some fresh milk because it's important. There's nothing like a cup of tea from around. Even at my age, I'm still yeah, good at yeah, making yeah. tea. In fact, that's one thing throughout my entire career I've done really well is made tea. the tea. Exactly. <laughs> tea and coffee. 
So I mean, else pull down tea sponsorship. I mean, you've got you you surely need to be able to get Lancashire tea, Yorkshire tea as a sponsor. Yeah, and I don't even really thought about it. Okay. Yeah, it's one thing you'll find in everyone's pit garage. It's yeah. one product as well as oil you'll find in everyone's garage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So now the the, the 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 burning point was that many didn't want to get their hands dirty, didn't want to be involved, and we're a little bit elitist. So what we try and do, or what we do do, is make sure that everyone coming out of here has had the experience and understands cause and effect of change, how their designs can be done, how to manufacture different things. So we try them in all areas. So they, they, they understand how to design a car, how to manufacture it, the various manufacturers, you're going to fabricate it, you're going to cast it, you're going to print it, you're going to make it as a composite part. Or and I think that's the thing now with modern technology. Yeah. It's, it appears first on the screen, yeah. really. Well, yeah, I mean, the Formula Student Project is quite interesting. So the students have finished all their assessments now, so they're now fully committed to building a car for, yeah. for the race at Silverstone in July. So they last week welded up the chassis and that was all done. And now they're obviously putting suspension on the car, but they need to sort out the clevises and the interaction. So they've, they've got all the drawings and they printed it. Yeah. They basically made it a one-to-one scale print. Yeah. So they actually are doing everything real time, which I mean, I'd have dreamt for that when you should have done that 35 <laughs> years ago. And nothing. I mean, we, we had CAD was cardboard aided design. Yeah. Whenever I, <laughs> if, I, if, I go, if I go back to my days when we did the homologation for the Calibra. Our suspension at that time was actually made by Pillbeam, racing yeah. designs, Mike Pillbeam from the hill climb days. And quite often he didn't have the, the original hardware. So I had an engineering blueprint yeah. and I would actually physically make the part in cardboard, yeah. spray it in black paint and photograph it for the homologation photographs because you couldn't tell. It was, it was a black and white <laughs> photograph of a cardboard part. Yeah. But if it was a suspension bracket or an engine bracket, whatever it was, you did that because, and then yeah, for sure that the real parts would come, but you'd have to do the homologation pictures often. Before the original thing, I was, now if somebody had given me the option of putting a machine and printing one overnight, oh, yeah, happy days, absolutely fantastic. Yeah, but I'd have never been as good at making cardboard parts as I am now. No, no. <laughs> well, I mean, the great thing is somebody who comes here can take part or try and work out if they're capable of, and they'll learn how to become involved in all aspects yeah. of motorsport. Because yeah. the one thing you try and get through to people about motorsport, it's not everybody thinks they should. Be, if you're in motorsport, you've got to be a driver. Yeah, you can't. You're not. Many a time, you won't be good enough to be a driver. As you yeah, said, you well, discover you were never going to be a good I enough to be a I found out my first time I sat in a car. The three people showed me I was very inadequate. <laughs> so do you, do you tell people, do you show people, look, this you have an interest in motorsport. This is probably going to be your best direction in it. Yeah, so what we do is by giving them the opportunity and by having the diversity in the course. So we've got three years to, to try and teach everybody how, regulations, and regulations, how to design something, what materials you can make it from, how you make it, make it how to make it go quicker, simulation. I mean, it's a massive amount. And what you tend to find is that because if you, a lot of our students would like to progress into Formula One, yeah. as soon as you get into that discipline, you become a very niche person. So you will become a specialist in hydraulics or yeah. aerodynamics or whatever it is. Now, I don't think people realize this. If you're at no. the pinnacle beat Formula One or yeah. sports car racing like Le Mans, yeah. there are mechanics who specialize in one small part yeah. of that. All, all areas, exactly. And you, 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 you do need that, but what you need to do is ensure that once you've made your bed, mm. as in you've made your career path, you're happy with that. Yeah. Because you're working for a long time in life. <laughs> so, you know, if you're going to work for 40 or 50 years, you want to enjoy what you're doing. You want to enjoy this longevity in that. Yeah. And it's also thinking of future proofing. So, you know, here we are now in this world of change mm. with a greener environment. Yeah. We might've got some DFV Formula One cars down there. 
but you've also got to consider electric hybridization, you know, uh, range extenders and so on and so forth. So all of that, and no one's really sure, you know, I mean, there's obviously everybody has a personal opinion yeah. on which direction we're going to go for the greener environment. The government's pushing us down an electric route. We all know that if everybody had an electric car, many wouldn't be able to charge it. Yes. No, we haven't got the power capacity to do it. Yes. Even if you put solar panels on a roof, you're struggling. So th th there has to be a definitive longer term. Don't get me going on. No, no, don't worry. <laughs> I, don't, I don't intend to turn it into green agenda. But what I'm saying is we have to make sure that evolution of the course. So we, you know, yeah. we launched an electric vehicle courses. We have to stay. We can't sit on our laurels and just keep churning the same stuff out year on year because no. industry's changing. I use printing as an example. We've invested quite a lot in additive suites. And I've seen the benefit myself, you know, and literally you saw earlier, we had the fun cup car down yeah. there. So we tested that two years ago before the spa 25 and it was a stonking hot day in beautiful Alton park, you know, 35 degrees. And the driver came in and he was profusely wet through yes. and he said, it's bleak hot in here. <laughs> so a couple of the students were like, oh, is there any regulations say you can or can't fit a vent? And there was a certain amount of scope. So they decided they were going to fit in essence, a funnel system with yep. an elbow that came in through from the door mirror. Anyway, they did a design themselves, uninitiated, and I didn't even know about it. Got one of the guys to print it. Can we fit this and try it? Absolutely. Happy days. They'd initiated it. They fitted yeah. it on the car. It was chalk and cheese. Drivers made up. They even put a little filter on it so he didn't get wasps flying <laughs> into the car. So it's those sorts of things. That, you know, if I go back to the days of where well, you were doing a composite part, yeah. you need a pattern maker. You know, yes. you'd make a, a wooden butt and then you'd make a mold from that. You know, and sometimes, you know, to make something like a, a lamp pod. It could take you, I don't know, two weeks yeah. just because of the time it took. If somebody can do your design, you can press the print on in the evening, come in the morning. But there it is. It's printed. There's, there's your book. What you need to do is flat it off and make a mold from it. It's, it's incredible. Now, before we go, you told me one story that you have got to tell the listeners about adjustable differentials. <laughs> this, we will finish on this. This is a story that sums it up. This is why the driver in question was a multiple world champion. Okay. So a few years ago we did, uh, this is 2002 from memory. We did rally New Zealand and rally New Zealand at that time, um, was a, a very unusual event, but the, the, the particular types of forest rally was very smooth crown and everything else. And we were playing as a manufacturer with active differentials. Which manufacturer was this? Just high Hyundai for right. the world championship. So, and we were doing our damnedest to try and keep up with everybody else on, on, on a meager budget, he says, which keeps it too poor to be born. So we, we would spend quite a lot of effort doing this. And as part of the debrief process, we would always go through all areas of the car. So the drivers at the event were Armin Schwartz, Freddie Loix, and Johar Kankinen. So we were chairing the debrief and we came onto differentials and Armin was asked first what he thought. And he said, oh, it's really difficult. And I'm struggling with the differential cars inconsistent. It understeers, it oversteers. And then Manfred, his co-driver. So they had override within the car. They could adjust that from the, the, the driver co-driver's console. So the comment was the car is inconsistent and we're actually missing some pace notes because he's spending so much time fiddling with them, the, the knobs to adjust it. He's missing the notes. So then we asked Freddie and Freddie commented the same. So I'm just the same Sven's faffing around with the switches and we're struggling to get the car to turn in all the rest of it. So then we look to Yuha and say, Yuha, what do you think? And he just sits back in his chair, looks at everybody as cool as he could be. And without doing my crass UR impression, he goes, boys, 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 I'm rally driver. Four times champion. When you drive rally car, 
Watch the road, hold the steering wheel, look at paddles, drive the stage, stop effing with the switches and drive it. <laughs> and and, it, and it, it kind of finished there and then. We look around the table, no engineers have any more comments. It's like, well, let's talk about suspension next then, shall we? <laughs> what more could you say? Drew. Mark Bushfield, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the Backseat Driver Radio Show. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. beaten on price never beaten on service whether it's cars bikes or commercials Hoddy tires are the best in the business and when it comes to tire expertise and advice to supplying the correct tires for your vehicle specific requirements nobody comes close to david lakin and the Hoddy tires team so give them a call on 01200 613 192 or visit the website at hoddytires.co.uk 